You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 12th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. US President Joe Biden grows increasingly impatient with Israel. Germany considers drastic action against its vexingly popular populists. And what steps is a justly enraged citizenry entitled to take against menaces to pedestrians? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Annette Dittert and Yossi Meckelberg will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from Elizabeth Braw as she discusses her new book about the rise and fall of globalisation. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Annette Dittert, Senior Correspondent for the German broadcaster ARD, and by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow with the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Um, Annette, first of all, you have recently been visiting a couple of places we will be talking about later in tonight's show. Which is Warsaw and Berlin, and both cities were fascinating and quite electrifying in a way. Uh, It does give me a chance to point out to listeners who may be sceptical because we kind of surprised ourselves. This is Team Foreign Desk when we went to uh, the Warsaw Security Forum, not last year, but the year before. And we had a bit of time in Warsaw. And it's not a place people often think of for a city break because there's lots of other places in, well, just in Poland, never mind Europe as a whole. We really liked it. Warsaw was really cool. Oh, yes, it is. It has been cool for a while. And now, I mean, with the Polish economy thriving, you can really see and feel it. It's a city on the up. You have little great restaurants everywhere, cafes, great bars, as long as you know where they are, <laughs> cool <laughs> clubs. It's it's really one of the coolest places, I think, in, in Europe, in Central Europe, for sure, at the moment. Although, obviously, if at this point people of our relatively advanced years <laughs> are saying Warsaw's really cool, it almost certainly isn't anymore. It probably was in about no, I 2010. Have a, I have a lot of really young friends who would disagree. <laughs> um, Yossi, you have re- recently been visiting Trumpville, Trumpland. Yes, straight in, in Wyoming, which we know we're going to talk about about Biden policies. Vast majority just doesn't like Biden there. If you can predict election somewhere, you can read that this is going to be 70% supporting Trump. Um, so, I, I think probably at, even at this early stage, the Biden campaign is probably not spending big in Wyoming, um, partly because almost nobody lives there, but those very yeah. few people who do were going to vote for him anyway. But but genuinely, when you if you interacted with people in Wyoming who are big fans of Donald Trump and want four more years, um, why do they want those four more years? Is there something they positively want or do they just dislike Joe Biden and everybody who likes him? They, they don't like anything that, that, that says of the Democrats. They didn't like Obama, they didn't like Hillary Clinton, and they don't like Joe Biden. They will say freely, they think he's a criminal, he's a crook. You know, it goes freely there. And, uh, and the other thing, Wyomingites almost go back to the original Americans. They generally don't like government. Mm. They think government is a bad thing because A, taxes you, they don't like it, and, and B, it might even put soldiers in your house one day. So the idea, governments are bad. We know how to handle our 
issues. So Democrats always associated with central government, big government, so it's a no-no. Well, on that cheerful thought, uh, we will start with the Middle East and with the related, if entirely unsurprising, revelation that US President Joe Biden finds Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu somewhat exasperating. According to plausible reports in American media, Biden has given vehement and indecorous vent to his vexation with Netanyahu in private conversations, frequently employing an epithet which rhymes with glass pole. Biden is apparently frustrated that his suggestions that Israel exercises rather more restraint as it moves further into the Gaza Strip are falling on deaf ears. Um, The basis of this, Yossi, is not news that Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu do not get on. I mean, you can insert pretty much anybody in Joe Biden's place in that sentence, and it's more or less accurate. Um, Barack Obama famously couldn't stand him. Um, I'm not sure how well he got on with either Bush or with Clinton. Um, But he is clearly, well, let's say, let's call him an acquired taste. But if Biden is genuinely irritated with Netanyahu personally and with Israel politically, what is stopping Biden at this point from just stating plainly and publicly that what is happening in Gaza has to stop or else? You're, you're right. I don't think any president or anyone in Washington really liked Netanyahu, but there were times they respected him. Mm. There were certain aspects of the respect. I think they lost respect for him altogether. And Biden was very critical in the nine months leading to October about the judiciary. Indeed uh, so. The front. so he, and he, he refused to see him for months no end. And eventually agreed in September to see him on the fringe of the UN General Assembly. So this was their first meeting, this time around as Netanyahu, as, as, as Prime Minister. Now, October 7 changed something, obviously because of the great trauma, the big shock, and Biden immediately visited Israel and expressed his, his support. But he also, you know, he made mistake by giving Israel almost a blank check to do whatever it likes, but he also warned Israel because he knew Netanyahu and said, A, learn from our mistake at 9-11, mm-hmm. and, and, and B, democracies fight differently. But he didn't insist on this. And he let what's happening now for four months to go on. And now, I, I don't know, I, I find it very strange. The United States that, you know, just $14 billion that supplies the weapons and, and gives the diplomatic support, veto twice already in the Security Council, as basically in the toolkit, all the tools that needs to tell Netanyahu, stop what you do now or else. And, you know, the idea that we hear all of this kind of expletives saying, you know, basically someone is, is briefing the journalists. Mm-hmm. Hear what Biden says behind his back, what he really think about it. But this is not policy, especially, as you know, maybe in the next day or two, the Israeli military force might enter into Rafah when there are one and a half million people, six times more than were there before October 7, and we can only imagine you know, the nightmare scenario that can develop there, while I think the United States still has the power to stop it. Just on that thought, then, and a similar question as as to the one I put to Yossi, Annette, what is stopping the United States from stopping it? If, as Yossi outlines there, that's they're probably the one entity on Earth which can uh, rein Israel in at this point. Why would the United States not do it? 
I, I really don't know. I mean, I think that's the million-dollar question, as, as Yoshi just said. I mean, it's completely inexplicable in a way because they have all the tools to stop uh, to stop this. And, and I can't really understand that. And I also thought these reports today of, of uh, Biden personally behind yeah, these private details that were sort of more or less leaked to the press, I mean, deliberately, were weird because that was signaling to his base. He's, I mean, the 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 Palestinian base who's lose, he, he might be losing mm -hmm. as a Democrat, which is dangerous for him. Signaling in a very indirect way uh, that he doesn't like it, but then not doing anything. I, I really don't understand it. I must say. You'll uh, see. Is there anybody else uh, apart from the United States whose opinion registers uh, certainly with Benjamin Netanyahu, and that is to bring it back to recent developments here in the United Kingdom? Um, just today, we've heard Lord Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, taking a remarkably brisk line. Um, he has said that he wants an immediate pause to the fighting and then a full ceasefire, by which he was quite clear, and I mean, and this stops, this is over. Uh, we've also seen the United Kingdom uh, sanctioning four individual West Bank settlers. How significant are either of those developments, or I guess those two developments in concert? I think, again, and the Biden administration did something very similar last week. You would expect it to have some accumulative impact on Israel. But strangely enough, Israel is not in a mood to take any lessons from anyone. They will translate it to anyone. You see, you stop us. As Netanyahu said only yesterday, everyone that tells us stopping the war right now doesn't want us to win. In other words, they want us to lose. They're supporting Hamas. And this is the kind of how it translated instead of we're trying to help you to help yourself at this point. It is actually perceived differently. Now, I think Biden said something very important in the sense that he doesn't believe that Netanyahu is continuing the war only to win the war, but he wants to drag the war because he knows that his political career is over. Mm -hmm. So I think what... Lord Cameron said, not only this, by the way, also leading the pack on saying about, about recognizing a Palestinian state even before a peace agreement, mm -hmm. which some of us said it for, for, for years. And then probably was said with some kind of okay from, from, from the United States. So I think there are some developments there, but at this end, I think Rafa is kind of the, the last throw of the dice for, for Netanyahu to try to survive in power. And as a result, there is no will to listen to anyone. Uh, Yossi and Annette, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both shortly. But now to another voice familiar to the morbidly attentive listeners of the Monocle Daily like we have any other kind, etc. Elizabeth Braw is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a columnist for foreign policy and a regular panellist on this here show. She is now also the author of Goodbye Globalisation, The Return of a Divided World. The book chronicles the unravelling of the international order which was optimistically proposed circa the end of the Cold War, connected and collegiate, with mutual economic interests overwhelming more atavistic rivalries. Those were the days. I spoke to Elizabeth earlier and began by asking, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? I think... What, what went wrong was that we became overconfident in the system that we thought we had built and we thought that everybody was committed to it and then all of a sudden it turned out, I think, after the global financial crisis, 
Uh, that was sort of the, the peak or the beginning of the decline. It turned out that actually not everybody believed in globalization. Not everybody believed it was a good thing. And it was a, a, an unusual uh, alliance, not an alliance at all, an unusual a group of people ranging from Chinese officials to ordinary people back home here in the West who decided that this is not really working for us. I think it is important to make it clear to listeners that your book isn't, you know, heavy going, beard scratching economic theory. You do do that thing of going out and finding people who have stories to tell about how globalisation benefited them or globalisation didn't, or in some cases did and then didn't or didn't and then did. Obviously, there is a whole world of stories like that from the last couple of decades. How did you pin down the people that you wanted to make the stars of your story? Yeah, I've always believed that with every point you want to make or every story you want to tell, you have to have people in it. Mm. Otherwise, it's so boring for the reader. <laughs> Why would anybody just want to hear what I have to say? They want to hear what, what people out there have to say, whether they be ordinary citizens of different ages, whether they be leading politicians, whether they be business leaders, or whether they be uh, trade union leaders or trade union members. And so when I started writing the book, or before I started writing the book, I, I thought about, you know, what sort of people do I want to have in here? Which groups do I want to have represented? And there should be people of all stripes who have experienced globalization in some way. And we have all experienced globalization, even if just as consumers. And then I looked for people in these different groups, and it should obviously be geographically diverse as well, and, and ideologically diverse. So, so the left is represented, the right is represented, different ages, and as I said, different groups, different professional groups including Gen Z, which is obviously not yet a professional group. <laughs> uh, if there is one thing linking all these stories, it struck me that it is that these were all people who are alive at a time at which their world becomes, for better and for worse, much bigger, which means it obviously becomes more confusing. Your book talks about, obviously, the retreat from globalisation. Do you think that's part of the reason for it, that there is only so much that most human beings can take in and at some level we are just more comfortable thinking, look, this is my town, this is my country, I don't really understand quite a lot of what goes on beyond its borders and I don't really want to? Well, there is that. So that that is the, this strange confluence that happened. So ordinary people in the West who had uh, not been taken seriously in the late 80s and early 90s when all this began to accelerate, they started becoming more vocal. They started finding their voice. But then you also had Chinese officials and, and indeed Chinese officialdom beginning to say, well, now we have learned what we need to learn. We are quite strong economy now. We don't need to be the, you know, the little pupils of the West and we are going to assert ourselves. And it was also the time uh, around this time that Xi Jinping essentially started to asserting himself geopolitically and within China essentially becoming more authoritarian. Mm. And of course, we had Putin becoming more authoritarian and indeed more aggressive towards other countries. All of this really began accelerating at the end of, of the previous decade, so the late uh, 2010s. And uh, it's interesting to think about what would have happened if it had only been Western citizens who had said, we are tired of or, or just sick of not being taken seriously. We want to be in charge of our destiny. We don't want people far away from us to take decisions. What if that had been the case and China had been uh, behaving nicely within globalization? Russia had been, been behaving nicely. 
would we have seen this development that we have seen now? I don't think so. It's this really unusual constellation of developments or events that has come together. And in the end, now that we look at globalization, it seems to have almost no defenders. It certainly does have its critics, and many of them have been the sentinels of the populist backlash we've seen across Western democracies in the last decade or so. One thinks most obviously of Trumpism, of Brexit, all of which did have a strong nativist element to them. But do you think that that is in itself susceptible to a backlash in the opposite direction, especially once the the older generations who voted for things like Trumpism and Brexit move on? Well, the, the strange thing or the interesting thing, Andrew, is that there is that nativist strand, as, as, as you call it, mm. but there is also the sustainability aspect of people, uh, especially younger people, saying, well, why is it that my clothes, my shoes, my technology, my electronics all of that has been transported uh, around the world to reach me. That is uh, not sustainable from an environmental perspective. We should be producing more locally, everything from food to electronics. So I think the, the desire for, for more production closer to home won't end when Trump flames out, which I think we hope will be soon. But uh, it will instead be expressed in, in this I think, increasingly urgent uh, concern about the environment and and reducing the harm we do. And and it is really extraordinary that it's cheaper to manufacture something in a faraway country and then transport it to us here than it is to manufacture it at home in any Western countries and then send it around there. So there's something that I think the next generation of policymakers will have to think about. How do we make it attractive to manufacture here at home in whatever the Western country is so that uh, we don't put even more pressure on the planet by, by needlessly transporting things that we could make at home? Elizabeth Braw there. Her new book, Goodbye Globalisation, The Return of a Divided World, is out now. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. We can bring our panel back in now, Annette Dittert and Jossi Meckelberg, and to Germany, where since the middle of last year, the Alternative for Germany Party, or AFD, have been running a pretty solid second in national opinion polls, and first in much of eastern Germany, where three state elections are due later this year. Concern is therefore growing regarding what this unsavoury sack of hyper-conservative yahoos might do if they accrued significant power. This concern having been recently expressed by hefty street protests against the AFD across Germany, encouraged by Chancellor Olaf Scholz. One worry is a rerun of the populist playbook recently employed in Poland and Hungary, crucial to which is the co-opting of the judiciary. Um, Annette, we will come to that point shortly, but broadly, from where the AFD are now, and they're not a new phenomenon. They've been about around a decade or so. They hold 78 of 736 seats in the Bundestag. Uh, Plausibly, how powerful could they become? I mean, if you look at the current polls, they could become very powerful, especially in the East. Um, we have three big state elections coming up in September mm-hmm. in these in these states, in these East German states, and everywhere they're, they're polling uh, as the strongest party at the moment. And that is 
seriously scary, I think, for, for liberal democracy in Germany, because at some point there is no way uh, for, for the other big parties to not deal with them. And that's the big question that's now hanging over Germany. And that's why you have these huge demonstrations. I've been in Berlin uh, on one of them. There were 150,000 people in Berlin, 100,000 people in Munich yesterday. Um, this is the biggest demonstration you've seen in Germany since 45, basically, if you take away the peace demonstration. So there is palpable anxiety that um, this party will play a much bigger role than we were used to because they always, as you said, they were they came up like 10 years ago as a Eurosceptic party, was, weren't taken very seriously and then they had a big surge in 2015 when Merkel uh, mm -hmm. let in uh, one million Syrians, mostly refugees. Um, that sort of uh, triggered the growth of that party and now over the last year, basically, you see this sudden surge that is... Seriously worrying. Yossi, how important to the better organised populist movements, at least, is this idea of court capture? Because the logic presumably is that, you know, governments can be voted in and voted out fairly readily. But if you lock up the courts, um, the obvious example being the US Supreme Court, which is a lifetime appointment, then you've kind of got the run of things for decades. And I think that's very important to fortify the judiciary. And again, we talked about Israel, that's what, for nine mm. months, is protecting the judiciary, making sure that the Supreme Court is protected and every constitutional change needs special majority. Otherwise, you know, if it's enough with simple major majority, every election, a populist uh, party comes to power. Germany, of course, have a terrible history with that. And then you change the constitution and through democratic means you become a dictatorship or authoritarian uh, government. This is exactly when, you know, the, the, the checks and balances and yeah. underpinning the constitution with a special majority in parliament that will never allow this, this to happen. Now we see even in the United States through changes of the judges, for instance, you create a more conservative conservative uh, Supreme Court. But this takes a much longer time. Hmm. By not having then, then it can happen almost instantly. And this is the danger. That's why it's currently also discussed in Germany how to fortify the democratic institutions. The, the latest proposal is to enshrine the rules that govern Germany's constitutional court in the constitution itself that only can be changed with a two-third majority. And I think that's a serious proposal at the moment. The um, current government would need the opposition to support it. They're not there yet, but uh, you can see how serious the situation is when you have these kind of discussions in, in Berlin currently taking place. But Annette, another idea being floated is the idea, which is, is legally possible, apparently, in Germany, of just banning the AFD outright. But that's tempting, though I can see that would be. It's not really plausible, is it? Because it's, it's one thing for the state to proscribe, for example, just, you know, a small gathering of weirdos that meets above, you know, in a room above a pub once a month um, to fulminate at each other. But this is a major political party, which, as I was saying, holds 10% of the Bundestag uh, and which tens of millions of Germans uh, wish to vote for. I mean, that wouldn't really be a reason not to do that when you mm. look at the German constitution, because the constitution has been set up deliberately um, in the with the thinking of of a defensive democracy, it's anchored in that thinking, which means democracy must have a possibility; it has the right to defend itself. So we have Article Twenty One in our constitution that says if you have a party that is anti-democratic and 
whose aim or which aim is to destroy the mm. system as it is, then there is the legal possibility that the constitutional court can say and uh, that that's over or can ban this party. But this is the sharpest weapon we have, if you want. But it's a double-edged weapon, as you said, because the question is constitutional courts in Germany have always been, I mean, famously reluctant to use it. We had the discussion in 2017 with the NPD, a neo-Nazi party, constitutional court, German constitutional court said, no, we're not going to do that. This party isn't important or relevant enough. There's no point in making such a fuss. That's, Now, a, that's a fantastic <laughs> insult. You're just not important yeah, enough yeah, to be banned. Exactly. Now we have the opposite, but that's a, we have a large party that is a serious threat, but that's an even bigger conundrum because now you have a party that is has been voted or will be voted for by so many people. I mean, it's the will of the population that is being expressed here, very democratic um, thought. So can you really do that? And also on a practical level, what would it lead to? It would make the AFD even stronger because it would make mm -hmm. them into victims. They could play that very well. And also this takes a very long time if you go this whole through this whole process. So until um, an, a party is really banned efficiently, effectively, that takes years. So this would take years and over these years it would take, it would probably help and support AFD's um, yeah, victimization they would sort of try to, to bring yeah. forward. I think in the every democracy there is a very delicate balance between when do you boycott, when you ban a, a party. In the case of AFD, you can say that the platform that they were voted in is very different to what they are saying now. Yeah. Because they, they went a long way into now talking about deporting people yeah. and people that are not integrated I mean, into, into our culture. So they moved. On the other hand, There is also always a danger that when you bear them, they go underground. Yeah. And they have actually more control of the situation if they are inside the politics yeah. than outside politics. On the, the, yeah, on the other hand, they have been classified by the German domestic services officially as, as anti-democratic okay. and anti-constitutional. So it's a real conundrum in a way. I think for practical reasons, I, I'm not for doing this now. I think it's a very bad idea. Not only because they might go underground, but also because it will, as I said, it will help them to create this myth of being martyrs okay. and uh, it will take, si simply, it will take too long. Well, in semi-related news, the recently reinstalled Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk is today dropping in on German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and French President Emmanuel Macron, part of a bid to thaw relations which grew decidedly frosty under Poland's previous government, dominated as it was by the populist Conservative Law and Justice Party. While Tusk and Macron will be more pleased to see Tusk than they ever were to interact with his predecessor, Tusk will need to be wary of looking too pleased to To renew the friendship himself. Back home, his political opponents, who include Poland's president, are keen to depict him as essentially the EU's man in Warsaw. Um, Yossi, first of all, Donald Tusk did get elected. You know, he is the prime minister. The people chose him in no small part because of his less hostile approach and attitude to Europe. Should he really care what anybody in Poland thinks about this? Well, he should care because they are pushing the agenda in, the, in, in certain direction. There is another thing about this conversation about the populist. Mm. They always think that when liberals are elected, it was some mistake. <laughs> some, something went wrong in the election. Have you mentioned Trump? So there is something wrong there. So they, they believe that they will, 
they will be they will be back. So I think yeah, you need to manage your own constituency and to manage politics in a way they don't give too much credence to what the opposition say because you won the election. Obviously, those who are pro-European and believe that Europe and remember that he was a very central person within the European Union, see this vision of Europe and coming, you know, the improving relations with Germany, which is important. And as you mentioned, it, actually, it's Poland that is more thriving right mm-hmm. now than, than, than Germany. So he put actually Poland in a very good place. And this could, should be the message. On the other hand, the populists that want, again... They thriving on the way that there is much, they must have an enemy. Mm. And for Poland, who could be better enemy than Germany? Um, Annette, the, the relationship can surely be repaired reasonably quickly, can't it? France and yes. Germany aren't going to bear a grudge forever. No, I mean, this is not a problem at all, I think, for Tusk. <laughs> That's the least of his problems, is to repair relationships with Germany and France. I mean, the... the thing is that these Poles who voted him in, I mean, that's exactly what they want. Poland is overwhelmingly pro-EU. And the fact that Kaczynski, the um, leader of the autocratic populist right-wing populist party, was basically now during the campaign threatening that he would take Poland out of the EU potentially was one of the reasons that made people vote for Tusk. Mm. So that is none of his problems. Tusk just has to be a bit careful because he was depicted during the election campaign by Kaczynski as a German mole. I mean, they were lying. Uh, I mean, the moment they opened their mouth piece, it was really awful. I mean, it was um, they had conquered TVP, the uh, state television, and they basically had been spread, were spreading lies about Tusk being whatever German, German agent, <coughs> mole. And he has to be a little bit careful now to not rush to Germany, and that's why he didn't go there first. Rush to Germany too quickly because he doesn't want to to get these um, memes out of this election campaign back up and alive. He just wants to slowly have people forget them. But the majority of the Poles are perfectly happy who voted for him to um, repair relations with the EU and and also with with Germany and Paris. Also because, and that was one of his promises during the campaign, Tusk's promises was to get back the frozen money that uh, lies in Brussels, Mm -hmm. which is 36 billion um, euros, which is quite a lot um, that might be unfrozen pretty soon, as soon as he has repaired the judiciary. And so I think um, this is all rather easy for him. Uh, just a final quick one on this, Yossi. Might Tusk also be minded to give both Schultz and Macron a bit of a kick uh, about Europe's collective defence? We did, of course, hear that bizarre, even by Donald Trump standards, outburst over the weekend. Um in which he basically said that he would cheerfully wave Russia into any NATO partner which was not meeting its 2% of GDP spending commitment on defence. Neither Germany nor France meet that commitment. Uh, Incidentally, Poland is nearly now twice uh, that commitment. And while it's obviously not clear that Donald Trump actually understands how NATO works, uh, he appears to believe it's some sort of protection racket under which everybody should be paying more money to the United States, even to him personally. He's not entirely wrong and has never been entirely wrong about the fact that a lot of European countries have been taking a free ride. In the last two years in particular, the Eastern European countries, Poland very much among them, um, have have got with the programme on this. Well, someone de- described uh, Trump's comments yesterday that he's unhinged and probably it's the best <laughs> description of that. 
It's not wrong that Europe should invest more in security because we see what happens in Ukraine. We see what happens right now in the Middle East and, and, and the Gulf. We, we need, unfortunately, we need to invest in military because there are military threats and there is no country always rely on, on, on the United States. But so. I think to come back to your question, uh, I think Tusk is going to be a very uncomfortable partner for Germany mm -hmm. in that regard, because he will, I mean, the Poles have always been very unhappy about Germany's reluctance in, in the beginning of the war in Ukraine to, to support an act. Scholz was very, very, for a very long time, really dithering and delaying. I mean, now they're delivering a lot of weapons but he was slow in the beginning mm -hmm. and they haven't forgotten that and and Tusk will make his point because he they've been very strong strongly arguing for more military support for Ukraine and he has already done that in Sikorsky the foreign minister as well but because there might be a, another Trump administration is important that someone will lead the way yeah. of a common security and foreign policy mm -hmm. in in Europe which is you know not calling to bomb another mm. ally And I think this is what actually, the, you know, for Tusk, he can lead this. Oh, together yes. With I mean, that. I think Tusk will and be one of the most important um, leaders in Europe in now. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, as soon as he has sorted out the mess at home, but that's another <laughs> long program. <laughs> well, let's finish with something completely different. And in the early 19th century, a gang of English weavers are feared for the future of their trade as the Industrial Revolution gathered pace, took to smashing the machinery designed to replicate their work. They took their name from a probably fictional character credited with similar vandalism. His name was Ned Ludd. The latest spiritual descendants of the Luddites appear to be at large in San Francisco, where they have set about a self-driving car. The miscreants sprayed it with graffiti, smashed its windows and set it on fire. Um, Annette, motives as we go to air are unclear. It is not known whether the people who did this were making any kind of statement or whether they just had a few drinks and thought it would be amusing <laughs> but if if they were motivated uh, by concern about what the self-driving car represents where are we on this I mean, me being a cyclist, I, I when I read this story, I thought maybe that's not the worst idea because I must say this this idea does scare me, sort of, um, of these cars. Um, maybe for all the wrong reasons, because probably a London angry London cab driver is more dangerous for me as a cyclist <laughs> than a self-driving car. But that's what I was thinking about or wondering about when I when I read that. I, I have no idea why they would do that, but I I think it's probably or the likelihood that it's political motivated is rather high, I would say. See, I, I am not a cyclist. I am, in fact, a pedestrian, and I have an essay rooted in that fact uh, coming up in an upcoming Monocle companion book, of which more later. <laughs> but, but this act of vandalism, uh, Yossi, put me in mind of an earlier one in Melbourne to which I confess myself, Annette, not entirely <laughs> unsympathetic. And this was when a cycle hire scheme called O-Bikes uh, was launched in Melbourne. And these, like so many modern cycle hire schemes, didn't have docks. You could just leave them wherever. And what a lot of Melburnians did was, well, quite a lot of them got through thrown into the Yarra River. Um, others of them were stuck up trees, uh, abandoned on inaccessible roofs, um, or, you know, ar ar arranged uh, in various fashions, and the, the company no longer operates in Melbourne. And having recently visited Melbourne, where I can report that Swanston Street, after about half past ten in the evening, is an absolute roller derby rink, um, I wouldn't be too unhappy at seeing more of that sort of thing, you'll see. The vandalism. 
Yeah, well, just, you know... The, these, For the sake of, you these, know, it these, makes life more these, interesting. These menaces to pedestrians just being dropped in rivers, ideally yeah. along with their riders. But I think in, 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 in this case, exactly a week ago, I visited a friend of mine in hospital that was hit by a drunk driver. Mm-hmm. And the one thing about, you can say, driverless cars, they never drink. So they, they, they will, you know, it's, it's a serious case. She was standing in a bus stop and hit by someone that had few pints too many and, and broke her knees. So both of them. So in this sense, at least I, I think this won't happen or less likely to happen when the technology perfects itself. I'm a cyclist too. <laughs> and there are a lot of clothes <laughs> yeah. that you feel yeah. this is the end. We know it in London, <laughs> but it might make the road safer. We can surely all get together on e-scooters, though, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all hate oh, yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, we not only hate e-scooters, but also the people who ride them. Uh, and and on, on that note of consensus, uh, that is it for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Annette Dittert and Yossi Meckelberg. The show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.